Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about curious endings of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going to go first and I'm going to talk a little bit about old timey treatments and medicine. So we're going to start off with fart sniffing for the plague. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the Black Death, if people are familiar with it, was the term for the bubonic plague that swept Europe, Asia, and the Middle East um, in waves. So it came in waves over a span of about 800 years. So it would arrive on ships uh, or travelers that would uh, just come in, just kind of hang around and just kill people. It wiped out huge amounts of people in a short period of time. At one point, it is estimated that it killed a third of the population of Venice. Yeah. So supposedly quarantine, and I just read this and I kind of followed this. Quarantine was originally started uh, and is originally a term to keep ships that were docked out of out of the port uh, they wanted to call on for about 40 days to prevent the spread of plague because the plague would be so bad. The plague was caused by Yersinia pestis, which is a bacteria that can be carried by rat fleas. Uh, and the ships, uh, they were called death ships, would just show up at ports full of dead sailors or dying sailors covered in boils. These boils were called buboes. They sound so disgusting. The bacteria was aerosolized, so the these people would cough or their boils would burst, and then the bacteria would be out in the air, you'd breathe it, and you'd get sick, and you could also get sick from their clothing. It was incredibly contagious, so even if the people were dead, you could still get the plague from them, and it killed millions of people, and it swept through Europe quite a few times. And there were various treatments tried on it, and I went into a few of them. Um, The first one, and I'll get to farts, don't worry. The human (laughs) body. (laughs) So the first one is bloodletting. Totally counterintuitive to me if you're sick that someone's going to remove a bunch of blood from you. But this this was seriously a thing. So they believed that the human body was supposedly made of four major fluids and an imbalance in any one of them could cause illness. So the early waves of the Black Death and even into the late 1700s, doctors would do bloodletting, hoping that it would create a balance in the fluid system of the body. So just imagine you're a doctor trying to pe- treat people with these disgusting boils and you're trying you're cutting them open trying to do bloodletting to help them or you know they give them purgatives so that they'd have horrible diarrhea or you'd make them vomit it was just it was a whole like major fluid imbalance thing that people were always trying to to balance out and bloodletting was a major way the doctors tried to do it it didn't really work yeah (laughs) 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 then farts we'll get to farts the, uh, so supposedly it was believed that foul odors from gases were supposed to protect people 
from the aerosolized bubonic plague, and this is believed in the 1600s. So people would keep farts in jars to sniff while they were walking around. When out Nick is gonna Nick is gonna lose his mind with joy when he listens to this episode. <laughs> or as well, or as well as, and and also. They would keep stinky animals inside. So if you have a stinky, stinky animal, you'd keep it inside. Hopefully it would ward off the, the bubonic plague. They also would sit people with really bad fevers by the same reasoning in front of like sewage. So if you had a bad sewer, like a bad fever, they would sit you in front of the sewer, hoping that the horrible gases would get rid of the plague. So imagine you're horribly ill. You're probably thinking you're going to die. And there's put you in front of a sewer to smell some horrible, 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 horrible sewer gas. Sounds like a great time. It sounds like the worst idea I've heard today, which is saying something. <laughs> right? Um, so there's a couple other ones. Uh, poultices. Poultices are, are popular in all kinds of things. They'd rub onions, herbs, cut up snakes, cut up pigeons on the buboes, um, thinking that they would help the infected boils. Um, or they'd drink vinegar, urine, or eat crushed minerals like mercury and arsenic. So they all thought these were things that might help. Not really understanding, you know, how germ theory wasn't around yet. This is not a thing. But luckily, because our sanitation, our medicine, and our pest control abilities are much better now, the, the plague is virtually unheard of, so... And according to a history.com article, I actually didn't know this. There's actually about a thousand cases of bubonic plague every year still. I knew that because you can get it from prairie dogs, right? You can get it from prairie dogs? They're so yeah. cute. I know. Or maybe fleas from prairie dogs. Yeah. I just know that prairie dogs are involved. Yeah. So so luckily, if you get it, it's, it's pretty easy to treat because we have good medicine we have good medicine right now hopefully that's continues to be the case for a while but yeah so modern antibiotics is able to kill the bacteria that causes the uh, bubonic plague thankfully but they did try uh sniffing farts in jars that was a thing (laughs) i mean why not yeah and then i'll go into mercury Another fantastic idea on our part, but, you know, we tried everything. Mercury and yellow fever. So do you know much about yellow fever, Emily? Uh, I do, actually. You do? Cool. It's one of the ones I had to learn about as a public health official. Yeah. So I can imagine that because it's caused by mosquitoes. Yep. And when mild, it's kind of like a nasty flu illness. You get, like stomach issues and headaches and stuff but in severe cases it it can cause internal bleeding hemorrhaging organ failure and death so if you have a lot of stagnant water and uh, mosquitoes um, in kind of hot humid weather yellow fever can can happen and be passed along by by lovely mosquitoes yeah they're salt marsh mosquitoes right yes 
And the reason why the salt marsh mosquitoes are important, I'll get into. And thankfully, there's a vaccine for it now. Um, but it, especially in the 1700s, they tried a lot of things. So one of the founders of the country and one of the signatories of the Constitution of the United States, Dr. Benjamin Rush, believed that calomel, a mercury chloride mineral, was a panacea. And he loved bloodletting and he loved mercury and he was treating people with bloodletting and mercury for yellow fever so he was treating them pretty aggressively in philadelphia in 1793 because there were so many salt marshes around the summer in 1793 was really hot and humid um, yellow fever slammed the population really hard and yellow fever was everywhere and people were dying of it all over the place so some rich people were able to flee the city but obviously poor people weren't able to do so so besides bleeding people and giving them toxic doses of mercury dr rush did have some good ideas so that's a good thing he proposed cleaning up the streets of sewage getting rid of the stagnant water and generally cleaning the streets in front of houses. And this actually went a long way. So he's kind of known for that, but a lot of doctors disagreed with all the bloodletting and the mercury he was giving them. And especially calomel, which is actually pretty popular at the time as a medicine. In small quantities, it's a stimulant. So it, it's like a white powder. It's a stimulant uh, and it can help if you're constipated. And if you took it, I guess it would blast through your guts. And you, it, it's kind of what I mentioned earlier with the, the floor, the four fluid theory of you got to balance the fluids. They figured if they blast your guts out, then it'll balance your fluids. Ugh. But unfortunately, calomel in really large quantities because it contained mercury caused mercury poisoning to people. And this in turn could have caused neurotoxicity because mercury not so good for you. And so you could get gangrene of the mouth because it would destroy the soft tissue of your mouth. Oh, no. Yeah, so these poor people, this is what they had. This is what they thought would help because they didn't really know how to cure things and our modern medicines weren't there yet. So calomel was used to tr as treatment in a lot of different things and a lot of different diseases in the Victorian era and even given to babies as teething medicine. <gasps> yeah. But eventually, uh, thankfully, it was determined to harm more people than it helped for a number of illnesses. So they stopped using it, thankfully. Yeah. Ugh. So let's get into syphilis. <laughs> yes, please. Because syphilis was uh, itself kind of an epidemic. Uh, syphilis, as we know from health class, is a sexually transmitted infection also caused by bacteria, um, and the bacteria enters your body through an infected person's sores and through your mucous membranes or if you have an open wound or a cut. Um, a long time ago, as you might imagine, sexual protection wasn't very fantastic. The earliest condoms were, the earliest recorded condoms in China were made out of oiled silk paper or lamb's intestines and were kind of only known to the upper classes. 
However, uh, during the Renaissance, condoms were more widely used and known, and these were made out of sheep's intestines, linen treated with chemical solution, and later leather, if you can imagine that. I mean, I, I, at this point, I can, <laughs> just because none of this makes any sense. The linen condoms, and I, I laughed over this a long time. So the linen condoms generally had a little ribbon on the on the like on the back of them so that the men could tie them on and they were used over and over <laughs> so they were not disposable like they are now so i don't know if you ever saw the movie casanova mm-hmm. yeah i went in thinking so many wonderful things and i was traumatized at the end oh no <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you might be familiar with him talking about his condom and yeah he probably had like one or two and reused them all over the place until they broke just and that was probably standard operating procedure for a lot of men at the time the there first w- oh go, go ahead. ahead sorry well there was so there was also a story of him providing his lovers with partially squeezed halves of lemons as basically a diaphragm oh Anyway, that's an aside. (laughs) Whatever works, man, still doesn't protect you or other people from syphilis and Casanova. No, I think that was specifically for pregnancy. Yeah, Casanova died of syphilis. (laughs) Womp, womp. Yeah, so the first rubber condom wasn't produced until 1855, way after Casanova, after our friend Mr. Goodyear uh, figured out how to process rubber. So the first condom had a seam in it. And it only covered the glands of the penis, so the very front part, the front bulby part. I'm not going to go into any more than that. If you're listening yeah, I'm, with kids, it's you're going to have to look it up on Wikipedia. Explain it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so the first stage of syphilis uh, initially causes a sore and a rash. It's really gross. And after that, I didn't know this. It can be dormant for years, like years. It can be dormant for years, so even like five to decades, um, and then eventually can cause neurological issues, organ failure, bad things, your skin falling off. Uh, Casanova, his nose fell off, I thought. Yeah, that was actually common, uh, the sort of syphilitic face and sunken in nose. Yeah, I was traumatized. Anyway, so... (laughs) So syphilis was treated with mercury again, but it was also treated with arsenic. And they liked arsenic because it didn't cause as many problems as mercury. So they found that arsenic really treated the first and second stages of syphilis pretty well. The drug that came out was called Salvarse, and I think in Spanish this this means save you or save them. And because it had arsenic, though, it had a lot of problems all its own. It did treat the syphilis, but it had arsenic. So the the arsenic is the poisoner's, in the poisoner's tool bag because it kills people. And arsenic was originally a toxic chemical that they used for wood preservative, I found out. Interesting. And so arsenic is pretty undetectable in food and drink, and that's why people, you read stories of people poisoning people with arsenic. It's bioaccumulative, accumulative, 
<laughs> Meaning you can slowly poison someone over a period of time until they drop dead. So I guess it's undetectable that way. And it just can go over and over and accumulate and eventually kill them. And, and people can become flushed, tired, confused, have diarrhea, they vomit blood, they lose their hair, and eventually it'll kill them. And chronic low-dose exposure, unfortunately, this is a thing that even still today people in places with unregulated drinking water um, can cause long-term exposure issues like kidney cancer, lung cancer, and liver and heart disease. So thankfully, penicillin came around in 1930 and was mass-produced in 1942. Penicillin really treats syphilis and bacterial infections a lot better than mm -hmm. mercury does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yay. Yay. Penicillin. And then we'll get into the opiate epidemic. The first one. The first one. The first one. So opiate addiction epidemics are really not new to this country. Um, according to Smithsonian, opiates made up about 15% of all prescriptions dispensed in Boston, 1888. And about one in 200 people were addicted to opiates pre-1900s. Did wow. you know this? I did not. It's not, it, it's not a new thing. It's not a new epidemic. So the average addicted were women usually of upper or middle class, and they would have become addicted to it from having it given to them for menstrual issues or pain, generally. Um, but they didn't have to label medicine back then. This is pre-FDA, pre-FDA rulings that you had to list what was in the medicine bottle. So you might have been taking it for pain, not realizing it had opium in it, and then gotten addicted to it, unfortunately. Yikes. Yeah, so laudanum and its sister morphine um, were pretty widely used for all kinds of things. They would be in cough syrup, cough syrup for cough suppressant, um, especially if there's tuberculosis, to treat diarrhea and general mm -hmm. pain. Um, the epidemic of laudanum and morphine use in the post-Civil War era, era came to an end in part because opium-based drugs began became harder to get. So in 1906, there was massive public uprising because people realized that uh, drug companies and people who made drugs were being kind of sneaky, putting opiates in medicine. And, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So Congress passed the Food and Drug Act, which ruled that medications had to have ingredients listed on the bottle. So people would know they're taking opium or giving their child opium. Bum, ba, da, bum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and unfortunately, laudanum, uh, which is a tincture of opium and alcohol, was cheaper to get than gin or wine in some places. So people would just go and get a bottle of laudanum and take it Ugh. recreationally. And mm -hmm. it was a really common addiction at the time so the incomes cocaine <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so sigmund freud loved cocaine i didn't know if you know that uh i mean it's, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest he loved it loved it he loved it so much he wrote four papers 
early in his career about cocaine. The first one was Uber Coca, about how <laughs> wonderful it was. And originally he thought it was promising, and a lot of other people did. This this uh, relates back to laudanum and opium. He originally thought that it would help people who had uh, uh, laudanum and morphine addictions and he really really thought it was promising and a lot of other people thought the same thing unfortunately uh, people, people also became addicted to cocaine as well as laudanum and opium isn't cocaine significantly more addictive than either of the other two which are both significantly addictive they're about the same addictedness and it really depends on the person they okay. act completely differently um so People taking a laudanum and opium are dreamy and happy. And then people taking cocaine feel like they're super productive and they're just can get everything done. So I guess it could be like a, a double edged kind of sword where you like, oh, I need I need morphine to relax and deal with my pain. I need cocaine so that I can get shit done, I guess. Yikes. Yeah. So Freud started taking the drug in 1884 after reading about it um, in a paper about a German soldier who used it after collapsing from exhaustion, and he's like, hey, I need to try this. So (laughs) (laughs) as one does, Mm -hmm. he, uh, you know, I got to give him props for at least trying it on himself before prescribing it to other people. Yeah. But he he did start prescribing it to his patients um, to treat them from anything for depression and indigestion, fatigue, um, laudanum addiction. And then he was giving it to his friends saying, this is really great. I love this. And one of his friends actually discovered the analgesic for eye surgery. So that was actually a good thing because it was used in eye surgery um, as an analgesic. So that was a good thing. Okay. But Freud got a lot of people addicted to cocaine. <laughs> <sighs> That's Sigmund. Yeah. So Freud stopped taking um, cocaine in 1896. And then he never talked about it ever again after like a 12-year span of thinking it was the best thing ever and the reason why he was so um, productive. But <laughs> yeah, after its invention, it was used pretty pretty heavily in a ton of different medicines and treatments for things, um, including, as I said, laudanum addiction, which a lot of people post-Civil War had, especially soldiers. They would have chronic pain issues from wounds that they got. They'd get morphine or laudanum, and then they'd be addicted to that. So it was sad kind of double-edged sword. And they used it in a ton of stuff. And again, this is before the Food and Drug Act. So it could be in anything from toothpaste, teething drops for your kids, could be an indigestion um, medicine. It could be used as an appetite suppressant. It could be used in a stomach stimulant. It could be given to people with anemia. It was just in a ton of stuff. And again, the Food and Drug Act really helped it kind of say you have to say that this has cocaine in it because you can't just be giving people cocaine without knowing them (laughs) so yes and so um later it became it's obviously with uh morphine and laudanum opium 
and cocaine, they're all Schedule Two, so they're they're illegal now. And whether or not you agree with drug prohibition is not a thing. But at the time, it really decreased the numbers of people who were taking it accidentally and getting addicted. I think we can all agree that accidental cocaine or heroin ingestion is not something anybody really wants or deserves. Like, you can... <laughs> it's just horrible. I know. Just imagine thinking, oh, I'll give this to the baby for teething. Just rub it on her gums. You know, of course, it's an analgesic. It's going to help. But Yeah, it, cocaine makes makes your baby. mouth go numb. Makes anything yeah. go numb. Yeah. yeah. Causes a lot of other problems, too. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, that's actually a plot point in the movie Road to Wellville. Uh that the wife provided the husband with something that had, I think, cocaine in it. I don't remember what. Heroin, mm-hmm. cocaine, something in, in it. And it was to help him get over something. I don't even remember. I haven't seen that movie since college. But she was distraught because she got her husband addicted to some drug because she didn't know it was in what she gave him. Yeah. And you'll see that a lot in movies about the Old West. There's always the lady with the tuberculosis cough, but also like bad nerves that is addicted to the laudanum syrup. It seems to be like a a trope. (laughs) But it really was true. People were addicted to this stuff and they might not have known that they were taking something addictive before they started taking it, but they damn sure figured it out after they realized they couldn't go a day without it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, where did they go? Time marched on. Medicine got better. Food and Drug Act. The whole nine yards. And now we have different plagues and epidemics to worry about. Yeah, like the opiate (laughs) epidemic. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And the not currently vaccine preventable diseases. Exactly. So hopefully... (laughs) They'll end up, we'll end up looking back on this when we do our, our podcast in our, you know, robot suits that our brains are in hundreds of years from now and be like, remember when Wasn't that a kick in the pants? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Sure. What are you going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about plague fashion. Oh, fantastic. I love so, it. So this dovetails very nicely with Sarah's. And in in f- interest of full disclosure, we did briefly discuss what we were covering beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the fashions that rose or arose from plagues and where they went. And I'm going to start with beauty patches, specifically artificial beauty patches or beauty marks. And these became popular in the 16th to 18th century and started in France, but they were used all over Europe uh, and the United States. They were known as mouche or flies, French for flies, and they were tiny patches of satin or velvet that were in the shape of hearts or moons or circles or stars. And they were glued onto your face or your shoulders or your bosom, etc., depending on whether you were in like an evening gown or a daytime outfit. Uh, Men and women used them, although it was more likely for women to use them. And so 
what's what's the point? Why did people have little pieces of fabric glued to their face? They were intended to draw attention away from or to hide sores from syphilis and pockmarks from smallpox. Oh, wow. So prior to inoculations for smallpox, which I believe started happening in the 1700s, but that could be incorrect. Yeah, so they used to uh, inoculate people. They would scratch their sin- their skin and inoculate them with cowpox, I believe. Mm-hmm. Some one of the variolas, and then um, which is smallpox is a part of because right. one guy realized that uh, w- a milkmaid who had gotten cowpox was not getting smallpox, even though people in her household had small smallpox. I believe is the story, and so mm-hmm. that he figured that out. And I think it was the 1700s. Yeah. And one of the major reasons I know it was it had happened by the before the 1770s is because the uh, its first American army involved a lot of uh, inoculation against smallpox. So anyway, it was a very common disease. People got it all the time. People tended to survive it, but they'd often have pockmarks left over or scarring. Uh, It could be just on their face or it could be all over their body. And then sores from syphilis were also pretty common, and early on you could probably hide them. So there was also sort of a language to the placement of beauty patches, with the, the where you put it, like the corner of your mouth or next to your eye or on your shoulder or whatever, indicating different attachment statuses or flirtation intentions. So you might be looking for a suitor or you might be engaged to be married or whatever. So it was turned from something of a distraction away from something unsightly into its own sort of fun thing. So where did they go? Well, people became inoculated from smallpox. It's actually, I believe, the only disease that's been eradicated in the, on, on Earth. And so we still kind of know what they are, uh, even if it's not a beauty patch, a beauty mark like Marilyn Monroe's beauty mark or Cindy Crawford's beauty mark are heralded as attractive. And they're often, people will draw on a beauty mark and it's often to draw attention to your face in that place, not necessarily to hide something else. Uh, There's also piercings. Facial piercings take some, are are to some extent a, a component of this or an offshoot of this, particularly like the Monroe piercing where it, it ta- a piercing takes the place of a beauty mark. And I actually, they're used in costuming. I noticed them in the movie Interview with the Vampire. Uh, one of the victims of the vampires had beauty marks that were little patches of satin or velvet glued onto them. So that's where beauty patches went. They just kind of became part of Western aesthetics, but in a more sort of either much more synthetic or much more natural way. So much more synthetic with the piercings, much more natural with the uh, celebration of facial moles or drawing them on. So I wonder if vampires can then spread syphilis? Huh. I don't know that it has been explored fully, the uh, ability of vampires to act as a vector of communicable disease. (laughs) Okay. 
Maybe I'll go go somewhere with that. <laughs> it's not a bad idea for a story. No, not at all. Like some some very well-intended public health nurse uh, crusading against vampires because they keep spreading these diseases. Dang it. And they <laughs> shouldn't like, be. They're like mosquitoes. <laughs> She's got pamphlets and she knows how to use them. <laughs> so the next plague fashion I've got for you is a merkin. Do you know what a merkin is? I do. Yeah. So it's a pu- <laughs> it's a pubic hair wig. And so a lot of people at home, I'm sure, are going, why would you need one? So when syphilis was a problem, well, so there were two, two different plagues that uh, merkins were used around. Uh, sex workers would often shave their pubic hair in order to prevent body lice infestations in mm-hmm. Europe in, I don't know, we'll go with the Middle Ages onward. And then they would use a merkin instead as it was easier to keep free of pests. So they were in the fashion of what was considered normal for pubic hair, but they didn't have to deal with as much in the way of body lice. Body lice are also sometimes called crabs. Uh, so, or, and this was probably more common, uh, they would use a merkin to cover up the loss of pubic hair from venereal disease, including syphilis. Mm-hmm. So syphilis would involve a lot of sores and a lot of hair loss and stuff and rashes and whatever. So it was a way to be able to continue working and hide symptoms of an incurable at the time disease, unless you were using mercury. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you didn't starve. I'm not, I'm not one for advocating communic- <laughs> spreading disease, but I'm also not one for advocating black and white thinking about morality. Uh, Agreed. So where did Merkins go? So they're used primarily for costuming, uh, either in period pieces, period films where there's nudity uh, in order to match pubic hair trends of the time or to prevent full frontal nudity. So uh, they can be used as sort of like pants or underwear bottoms, as it were, and be made somewhat larger. But... <laughs> So, but so, so they show that there is, you know, a pubic area, but it's really uh, a fake one, a wig. Or that they're sometimes used as decoration in sex work. The Wikipedia page uh, for Merkin actually shows a decorative one that's like hot pink. And so in pornography and possibly for sex workers, I have no idea. Uh, it can be used as decoration. So that's where Merkins went. They're still around, but they're used primarily for costuming and not for covering up disease. <laughs> wow. Had no idea. Yeah. It's it's an interestingly, it's a very specific fashion item. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking like if you're shooting uh, pornography, a, a pornographic film, and you want your setting to be in the 70s mm-hmm. using actors from today, I can imagine that Merkins would be a good idea. Yeah, and even films that are not specifically pornographic but involve nudity, if yeah. you don't want to have to wait, <laughs> <laughs> then it can be very useful. No Brazilians. We got to shoot this movie. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of it is, like I, I said before, sex workers would shave their pubic hair a long time ago. So yeah. it's, it is, a lot of it is fashion. 
mm-hmm. and also what's practical on a day-to-day basis. So next, you mentioned to some extent tuberculosis. So I'm going to talk about where sanitariums went. Yes. Now, tuberculosis is a bacterial, typically a bacterial lung disease. Although I think there are viral and fungal ones as well. Mm. And sanitariums were used for treatments of, say, tuberculosis or uh, drug addiction or... uh, There's just all sorts of other problems. And so doing things like taking the air cure, going to the seaside, the prairie cure, visiting remote places were ways to attempt to recover from tuberculosis. It was at the time, and the time being, uh, let's go to 18th, 19th century. It was considered a susceptibility, probably genetic, to miasma or bad air. Uh, Bathing was also considered healthy for those with nervous disorders or health troubles. And while indoor pools were uncommon because they're really hard to keep clean when there's no chlorine, uh, bathing at seasides and in ponds or lakes was considered, was more common. But when I say bathing, I mean, in the term bathing suit, I mean, walking around in water, not trying to wash yourself in the water. So it's it's not swimming as an athletic swimming, although there were certainly people who did that. But it was bathing in that you would like walk out in a giant, voluminous, skirted, bloomered, huge swimsuit <laughs> that you can't really swim in. And so I've actually <laughs> I've actually lived at two former like sanitarium spa type places. Uh, there was. Gull Lake and the Kellogg House, although I don't know that patients were housed there, or at least not often, uh, but the Kellogg family owned a house that was then deeded to Michigan State University, and my brother actually got married there. It's It's got a research station and housing for students, and then it's got the mansion that the family lived in, and you can uh, rent it for events, should you want to. We're not sponsored. That's just one use of the property. And it's really beautiful there. And then there's also Yellow Springs, Ohio in the Glen Helen Preserve, uh, which had a yellow spring. So a spring is a uh, sort of natural, perpetually seeping aquifer. And this this one is full of iron. And so the water comes out fairly orange. I don't really know why it's called Yellow Spring because it's pretty orange water hmm. and people would bathe in it. And sim- it's kind of, I, I would consider the bathing that was done at this time. Think of like what people do in a hot tub. Uh, they mostly just sit around. Mm-hmm. This was kind of what people did in this not hot tub because the, the, the spring is 55 degrees at all times. It's un- it, it is not warm. Probably feels great in the winter. But it probably is, well, I mean, it's probably brisk in the summer. That's cold. Yeah. So all of this was pre-antibiotics. And at the time, traveling while ill was uh, not all that uncommon. Mostly because people were just sick all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And traveling while ill is now highly discouraged. Uh, and though plenty of people actively ignore this, uh, they don't, people don't t- 
tend to travel somewhere in an attempt to cure an illness unless they absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be seeking medical care. It's not, I'm going to go to a, a spa and a hotel and all this stuff. And so a lot of sanitarium culture has changed into sort of spa culture with a slightly different bent of more looking at aesthetic changes to the body or wellness in general. And I put wellness in in quotes. Uh, It's not treated necessarily as serious medical treatment, even though some spa services such as massage or acupuncture are useful medical services when utilized correctly. But a lot of what spas provide is not specifically medical a lot of it's things like hair removal and relaxation and while relaxation is important uh it's not curing tuberculosis that's a slight (laughs) adjustment in the goals so swimming has done it has become significantly more popular uh there's a lot of change in the use of swimming it's still used for health it's used for recreation and for things like photo shoots for the gram all that Uh, (laughs) but bathing in seas lakes and ponds while it's still a part of people's lives isn't often considered much of a health cure there are exceptions in certain locations but by and large people don't think sitting around in a natural body of water is going to cure anything swimming pools were for a while considered a transmission source for polio so there was a rolling wave of closing them down to prevent polio transmission Uh, they are not a source of polio and that figuring out that inaccuracy coupled with polio vaccination stopped this issue and so now pool sanitation and safety are rigorously controlled when it's public pools so while there are risks of pool-borne disease they're significantly less common And they're rigorously Mm -hmm. responded to. So swimming has become in a lot of ways safer uh, in terms of exposure to the water. Uh, But it's also the utility of swimming has has changed, at least in our minds. Uh, Pools are still a vector for communicable disease. So the the cure became the the crisis, I guess, to some extent. (laughs) Uh, Legionnaire's disease is a common airborne moisture-involving disease, and it can cause serious respiratory problems and can kill people who are immunocompromised or who are older. And then cryptosporidium is ugh, scary because it's a, it's a diarrheal illness, and uh, it does not respond to even normal levels of chlorination in terms of dying. You have to hyperchlorinate pools for like 24 hours. Yeah, it's in order to get shocking. Yeah. yeah, in order to get rid of cryptosporidium and not just the pool, but the plumbing and you have to clean stuff. And it's just oof. it's a gnarly disease. Swim teams. If a kid on a swim team has it, it just gets spread all over the place because they go to different pools all the time. <sighs> it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of a very meandering uh, look at sanitariums and how their utility and names have changed over time. So we still have getaway culture for health, but it's not the same gravity of health problems. It's not tuberculosis or like serious drug addiction or things like that. No. Uh, but stress is a problem. 
And like I said, some spa services like massage and acupuncture are actual medical services when done properly. So next, let's talk about plague doctors. Yes. Plague doctor costumes are currently used as the face of discussions around plagues, but they were actually a pretty specific geographic and temporal phenomenon. So what am I saying when I say plague doctors or what am I describing? I am describing the hat wearing, goggle wearing, bird beaked, giant coat, glove wearing, stick wielding, big booted doctor of all sorts of popular culture and old woodcuts and things like that. And this was an actual costume that was used for treating illness and often specifically plague victims. It was possibly a French invention, but it wasn't utilized during the 14th century plagues. It was invented in the 17th century. And so the 14th century plagues were the Black Death. That was mm-hmm. the like one third right. of Europe died. And there were no plague doctors with the bird beaks and the smoked mirror or smoked glasses, goggles and the weird wrinkly flat hat and the it was a waxed linen or leather coat i cannot imagine how sweaty that outfit would be right so 17th century 1600s it was used in italy and often around rome and naples where plague outbreaks were again devastating like you said it rolled in waves Mm -hmm. It, it the costume itself eventually spread throughout europe but specifically for that 17th century plague alone. It wasn't brought back for later plagues and it wasn't used during the Black Death. And here's a description of it. This is a quote. The protective suit consisted of a light waxed fabric overcoat, a mask with glass eye openings, and a beak-shaped nose, typically stuffed with herbs, straw, and spices. Plague doctors would also commonly carry a cane to examine and direct patients without the need to make direct contact with the patient. The, the fragrant herbs in the nose of the bird mask were uh, sent to try to protect the doctor from miasma or bad air. Mm-hmm. Along with imbalanced humors, miasma was the cause of almost everything. <laughs> and when you saw one of these, these guys walking around, it scared the shit out of people because it was a sign of imminent death. Absolutely. And so... Where did the plague doctor go? So there were illustrations of plague doctors made at the time. And while they weren't, the costuming wasn't reutilized for future uh, disease outbreaks. It became sort of popularized in Halloween costumes and in, especially with the steampunk aesthetic and comics. And I would guess part of the popularity is the costume is really weird. It's very striking And it falls under the purview of a lot of different aesthetics. You could be a goth plague doctor. You could be a steampunk plague doctor. You could probably be an emo plague doctor. You can be an ironic plague doctor. A vampire plague doctor. I bet you could. (laughs) (laughs) If you wanted to. So plague doctoring uh, has been a thing. I don't know how helpful they were at the time because it seemed like they mostly just poked people with sticks and were like, yep, plague. <laughs> but they were the only ones doing it. <laughs> so, uh, so one thing, uh, this is a slight, I probably should have done this one before Plague Doctor, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, feminine beauty and uh, tuberculosis. So 
tuberculosis from the 1780s on became a really big public health problem, uh, particularly in Europe and in the United States. The symptoms that specifically became entwined with feminine beauty and what was considered beautiful for a woman were pale skin, a hectic flush or like really bright pink cheeks, thinness, uh, brooding behavior, silky fine hair. And all these things became romanticized in the Western world, particularly during the Victorian era and pre-Victorian era and post-Victorian era. So where did that specific tuberculosis aesthetic go? Uh, Goth culture and cosplay and to some extent steampunk. They all kind of got tied together. But what, what did tuberculosis and the understanding of germ theory do to change female fashion and male fashion, but we'll do female fashion first. So long full dresses were considered to be harbors for germs and skirts became less voluminous and shorter, though not short, short. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would take us to the 1960s. Ain't no one going to see your ankles. No. Or they might see your ankles in a very tall buttoned up boot. Yes. But that would be it. But skirts, hoop skirts were no longer particularly fashionable. Uh, Bustled dresses became a little simpler. And then corsets eventually became elasticized with less boning to try to let the lungs expand more. (sighs) While corsets in some flavor or another persisted up to World War One, they became much closer to the girdle. Uh, and a girdle is sort of an elasticized shapewear garment without boning or as much rigid restriction of the internal organs because it was understood that being unable to uh, allow your full lung to expand both made tuberculosis worse to deal with and then also made it more likely for you to catch it. So where do corsets go? Uh, corsets and the big full fluffy skirts are still used in in lingerie they're still used in cosplay they're still used in reenactment and the sort of waist trainer trend uh, that uh, has cropped up among wellness and fitness instagrammers like the kardashians uh it's just a corset so (laughs) that's where corsets have gone uh tans So while tuberculosis was uh, informing fashion and particularly female fashion, it paleness was idolized and it was once it was better understood that tuberculosis was contagious, sunbathing, taking air, spending time at the seaside, etc. became a recommendation for prevention and treatment. And this shift took place around the late 20s. There was actually a comparison of Vogue articles in 1920, 1927, 1928, and 29, and tanning was considered a much more socially acceptable activity as time went on, and paleness and skin bleaching got a lot less column space. This was actually like a white paper and a, a review of the, the uh, occurrence of articles about paleness versus articles about tanning as being okay. Oh, fascinating. So this is sort of a lesser discussed component of tan versus pale because a lot of it was like, oh, if you don't have to work, you could be pale. And now if you don't have to work, you can be tan. It's like, yeah, but it's also a sign of attempting to prevent tuberculosis. 
and to prove you don't have tuberculosis because TB patients were often very pale. So uh, I mentioned this would also involve men's fashions, uh, men's facial hair. For a long time in the U.S. and to some extent in Europe, facial hair was more popular, uh, partly due to the difficulty in procuring and caring for razors and for keeping them clean and keeping shaving brushes clean. Uh, Beards were not uncommon. As germ theory took hold, it became pretty obvious that full facial hair was a pretty effective germ catcher. At the turn of the 20th century, especially with better understanding of the benefits of sterility and cleanliness around medical care, being clean-shaven became more common and popular, particularly for doctors and soldiers. And this also coincided with the 1918 flu outbreak as well as World War I. So there was a lot of different reasons that facial hair fell out of fashion, but a lot of it had to do with germ theory. There's Interesting. A ni- yeah. There's a 1916 publication, The Menace of Whiskers. It's, it's an, uh, oh. a newspaper article. And it pointed out that a lot of what would eventually become vaccine-preventable diseases like whooping cough, TB, scarlet fever, measles, diphtheria could all be carried around in facial hair. And if you had it as a child, you're more likely to have immunity to it. But, and this is a a quote, uh, sacrifice whiskers and save children. Oh, that's too bad I love facial hair on men. Well, and it... It changed again, and then it's changing back now because men are having to shave their facial hair in order to wear masks effectively. Uh, and somewhat, right. Yeah. Somewhat ironically, uh, cases of anthrax from infected shaving brushes became an issue. There was like a batch, a big batch of shaving brushes that had anthrax in it that was shipped all over the world. And a lot of guys contracted anthrax. Uh, what yeah uh and because when you nick your skin if your shaving brush was uh infected it would get into the nick in your skin and this was either pre-safety razor or just when safety razors were starting you know it depends on where you were in the history of mr gillette so lord carnarvon carnarvon i don't know one of the guys who opened king tut's tomb might have been killed by complications from a skin infection contracted from an infected shaving brush. Wow. So beards have cycled in and out of fashion, for, but for men who work where they need to wear an N95 mask or similar tight-fitting, airtight facial mask, there are very specific facial hairstyles that work, and all other ones do not. Uh, but beard growth has also been used to bring attention to disease causes. Uh, no Shave November a.k.a. Movember, is intended to bring attention to cancer causes. Uh, The goal is to donate the money you'd spend on shaving or grooming supplies that month to cancer-combating causes, and the extra hair growth contrasts with the hair loss that cancer patients endure, so it calls attention to the whole thing. So, beards can be used for good, but you gotta actually, like, donate the money and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about face masks. Yay, uh, basement. No. I mean, they're very <laughs> topical right now. I, yes, they I are. I did some work on sewing several of them today. So and this is a quote. In community and home settings, the use of face masks, masks and respirators are generally not recommended, with other measures preferred, such as avoiding close contact and maintaining good hand hygiene. That may not necessarily be the case during a pandemic. 
Surgical masks are popularly worn by the general public all year round, and it's not uncommon in East Asian countries like China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. And the goal is to reduce the chance of spreading airborne diseases to others and to prevent breathing in pollution. It can be smog, it can be dust, it can be smoke particles. And it's also common to wear them during flu season. It's a show of consideration for others and social responsibility. They do provide some uh, prevention against the spread of diseases, but some of it is also just to show kind of community spirit, like I care about my neighbors and don't want to spread anything. And then during the current coronavirus pandemic, uh, certain countries are requiring masks. Certain countries are highly recommending masks and certain countries are running out of them like ours. Uh, And then between the issues of smog and pandemics, it's super common to wear a mask, particularly in Asia. So face masks and surgical face masks have become kind of a thing. And they've become fashionable. Uh, J-pop and K-pop idols often wear masks, particularly in public places and particularly in uh, airports and travel and on trains and things like that. And... So a lot of masks have been uh, produced that are more decorative than functional because part of it was, you know, having the plague fashion become decorative. And surgical masks are also sometimes used to conceal identity. It has been the case for a long time to ban covering your face in places like banks. And in the uh, 2019 and 2020 Hong Kong protests, I don't know if you've been following them much, but there's a massive public protest ongoing in Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, protesters have been wearing surgical masks along with other and things like bandanas. Uh, the government has tried to ban such use. So as masks became popular, uh, often specifically because of things like SARS and smog, they became popular just all the time and not necessarily as a preventative measure. And then they became popular to hide your identity. So, and now they're becoming popular again to prevent (laughs) spreading disease. So that's a subset of plague fashions. We've got beauty marks. We've got Merkins. We've got feminine beauty. We've got men's facial hair. We've got surgical masks, sanitariums, swimming pools, I hope that all made sense. It was a little meandering. It was wonderful. It was really interesting. I hadn't really even known about the beauty marks. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Like I'd seen, you know, the period pieces of movies where they'll have like a courtier, like with the little heart, like on her cheek or something. But I never considered that that was anything but just cute fashion. Nope. It had... A, an intended sort of concealing purpose or attention grabbing purpose and then it could also be used for sort of communication wow had mm-hmm. no idea fascinating 
It makes me want to make a bunch of them and wear them. <laughs> I know. I kind of want a little glittery heart. Like I already have a beauty mark, like uh, where on my uh, under my lip, but I kind of want like a little a little glittery heart right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, no one will see it with my face mask on, so I'll have to make a glittery face mask. I mean, that's problem solving right there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And the glittery side is the outside, you know, because you want them two different colors. So you know which one, which side is the inside and which side is the outside. I mean, that's exactly what I did with the masks. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) So. So I haven't really been out of the house in a while. Mm Mm-hmm like a lot of people. And so we were reading this, my husband and I were reading the CDC recommendation to wear face masks when we go out, if we need to go out. Um, So he actually read a really interesting article about using vacuum bags, HEPA filter vacuum bags as the filter medium in fabric masks. And so he bought a bunch of pretty cheap Kirby vacuum uh, vacuum bags and we're going to be making masks with inserts of uh, vacuum bags in them so we're going to cut up the vacuum bags and put them in we'll make our face masks with pockets in them so we can like put the put the uh, filter medium in there and then if we need to go out then we can wear our masks and then obviously come home uh, mm-hmm. take it off and then take the filter medium off and then wash the mask immediately yeah, oh, yeah, I'm I'm doing the same thing actually. I read about vacuum bags being a decent filter material and I'm making masks with pockets. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we'll yeah. try to we'll try to share some mask designs. Yeah. My sister-in-law made a really really cool looking one and I think that I'm going to ask her, "Hi, Leanne. I'm going to ask her if she can maybe uh send me the the recipe." the pattern that she made or mm-hmm. at least show me how to do it. Cause she is a very talented sewist. So yeah. Very cool. Yes. That was fascinating. Mm-hmm. All the plagues during a plague. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, thank you. And you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. You can find our website at wheredoesitpodcast.com. Drop us a line. uh, Give us ideas. Have a great day. Stay safe and healthy. Yep. Bye.